From Washington, this is CQ on Congress, the nonpartisan source for in-depth analysis of Capitol Hill's policy debates. I am Sean Zeller. President Trump's defense of Vladimir Putin in Finland this week set off a wave of criticism in Congress and reaffirmations from Republicans on Capitol Hill that they, in contrast to what Trump initially said and later recanted, do believe U.S. intelligence agencies' conclusion that Russia sought to help Trump's 2016 campaign. I'll talk about whether this story has legs with CQ's foreign policy reporter, Rachel Oswald. And later in the program, I'll be joined by Cesar Vargas of the Dream Action Coalition, who wants to abolish ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency that deports unauthorized immigrants caught in the interior of the country. The House voted this week to state its support for ICE in defiance of those who would abolish it. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Sean. So, Rachel, I raise the question, and I want to know what you think. Does this Russia story have legs? It might. That's not as specific as you might like. But one week out from close to one week out after the Helsinki summit, we have seen a lot of movement on Capitol Hill as far as introducing bills and signing up as co-sponsors of bills. I recall that last year, the beginning of the Congress, Democrats and some Republicans came in raring to go, ready to make existing sanctions mandatory and permanent. And that energy, it took them all the way until the summer to actually get the omnibus sanctions law passed, which also included sanctions on North Korea and Iran. So there is every, every possibility that we could see another sanctions law pass, but it's going to probably take some time. Both uh, House Leader uh, Paul Ryan and his uh, Republican counterpart in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, have said that they are open to sanctions, but they want to see regular committee order followed. And Mitch McConnell this week called for the Foreign Relations and Banking Committees to have hearings on the status of sanctions implementation on Russia. Okay. And last year, Congress did pass a sanctions bill and President Trump signed it. Uh, Has it been implemented? Parts of it have been implemented, but not at all to Democrats' liking. Okay. And so is that our, is Congress pushing back against the administration for failing to implement the law that he signed? Yes. Democrats and a couple of Republicans have sent numerous letters to the administration demanding to know why certain parts of the sanctions law are not being implemented. But even as that takes place, there is a movement to create new loopholes in the law, specifically where it counts to the law's requirement of secondary sanctions on foreign nations' purchases of Russian weapons. The uh, the NDAA negotiators right now are deliberating. That's the Defense Authorization yes, Act. Thank you. The negotiators on that are deliberating right now whether to include a national security waiver that Defense Secretary Jim Mattis has asked for that would specifically apply to India, but also other potential countries like Vietnam that the United States wants to make security partners, but are still reliant on Russian technology. Okay, so there's actually some movement that is loop might loosen yes. sanctions. And it's a question of whether the Helsinki uh, summit hurts those people who are saying, who are arguing in favor of Jim Mattis's argument that he should have the waivers. Uh, okay. And so Congress also took some votes this week in response. And what, what happened? Well, we saw on the Senate floor two attempts to pass the unanimous consent resolutions reaffirming the U.S. Intelligence Committee's finding of Russian interference in the elections reaffirming the importance of the Mueller special counsel investigation and saying that the president should not interfere in any way. Both of those were blocked by different Republicans on the grounds that um, they've already, 
the Congress already agrees with the intelligence findings, so it's not necessary to have a resolution, and that you know a normal process should be followed. And and bringing those resolutions were the people bringing it bipartisan, or was it Democrats trying to embarrass the Trump administration? One of them, the stronger the resolutions, was brought by Bernie Sanders. And that was the one that specifically called on the president not to interfere in the Mueller investigation. The other resolution was bipartisan, and it was from Senators Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, and Jeff Flake, who is retiring Republican of Arizona. I would add that the— Who's been a big anti-Trump yes, guy. Yes, one of, one of the most strident Republican critics in the Senate, though, that hasn't led to much in the way of votes against um, major Trump administration policies and nominees— Uh, But one thing did happen, although I don't know how significant it is in the big uh, scheme of things. The Senate did vote uh, 98 to 0 to approve a resolution of reaffirming the principle of diplomatic immunity. This had to do with whether Trump was going to hand over a former U.S. ambassador to Russia to the Russians so they could question him. It was was one of the more bizarre things to come out of the summit. Um, The press secretary said that that, that they were reviewing what the things that President Vladimir Putin had asked for, and one of those was to be able to interrogate Michael McFaul. And that it wasn't immediately squashed, just be like, oh, of course we're not going to do that. Diplomatic immunity is a cornerstone of not just U.S. foreign policy, but just the foreign policy community overall, struck many in Washington as just bizarre in what has been a very unusual administration. So that was the one resolution that the Senate passed, but it did come after yes. the Trump administration had said, no, we're not going to handle it. And it was a McFaul. sense of the Senate, so it was non-binding, but they, they said, we don't, right. we don't want you to do this. Right. So although a lot of senators, um, Republicans included, said they were upset about Trump's performance in Russia, that they disagreed with him about the U.S. intelligence agency's conclusions about the 2016 election and Russian interference, basically, when it came to voting, Republicans backed the administration. Yes. I mean, the argument they say is we're going to do something, but we want to go through committee process. So... Apart from the controversy over Trump's comments in Finland, the, the other big question is what Trump and Putin discussed in their private meeting, and what are the diplomatic issues that they might be wrangling over? Do we have any sense of that? We still really do not. Um, we know that the Russian foreign ministry has said they stand ready to implement the verbal agreements reached between Presidents Putin and Trump. Um, It doesn't appear, well, senior cabinet officials, whether they know what was agreed to or not, they haven't yet released that information. A high-profile opportunity to learn that will come next Wednesday afternoon when Senate Senate Foreign Relations Committee hears from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He'll be testifying not only about the Helsinki summit, but also the Singapore summit in June with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So there's going to be a lot to go over there. But when the secretary appeared before the committee, the Senate Appropriations Committee in June, he refused to discuss the details of the North Korea summit. So it's not yet clear what much will be learned about the Helsinki summit if Pompeo stays true to course. Okay, gotcha. And Trump has also said now that he wants to invite Vladimir Putin to Washington. Do we have any sense of when that might occur or what the agenda might be? Uh, You know, the press secretary said in the fall, don't know much more than that. It still seems to be a very uh, new idea that is still percolating throughout the the White House and throughout the administration. I think it caught 
many members of the cabinet by surprise. There, there is a viral video going out now around Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, who received the breaking news during a, a public event at Aspen. Time for some questions. I do want to say we have some breaking news. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again. <laughs> you, Vladimir Putin, coming Did I to hear the, you? Did I hear you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be special. <laughs> and he just laughed and kind of shook his head. So it was news to him, it appeared. I think of interest will be the timing of the summit. Does it come before the midterms or after the midterms? Given the, the negative headlines, at least in Washington, about uh, the Helsinki summit, I wouldn't be surprised if Republicans are eager to have that happen after voting. Yeah, fair enough. So, Rachel, we're on the verge here of Congress's traditional August recess, although the Senate says it's going to stick around for a while. I mean, isn't the clock ticking here on getting a new sanctions bill? Yeah, realistically, there's just a few weeks that Congress has to get something in place before the midterms. But one would imagine if Russia were carrying out some kind of interference campaign, that, that it would be deployed before the actual date of the midterms. So there's, there's, there's vanishing little time to do anything. At the same time, the types of sanctions proposals that are being considered, particularly in the Senate, are much, much weightier than anything that Congress has ever attempted, keeping in mind that, you know, up until 2014, Russia was a G8 country. The United States has never attempted to sanction an economy in the way that these proposals would, that is the size of Russia's. So there, there is, you know, there's some due diligence that does need to be done to consider what are there going to be the harms to European partners of these sanctions recognizing how important the EU and NATO are to, to America's own economy and also to the credibility of U.S. sanctions. If the government passes a sanctions law that it turns out it is incapable of enforcing, what does that do to the credibility of you know, our sanctions threat? And I think it's fair to say that lawmakers do feel themselves between a rock and a hard place on this one. They want to make sure that sanctions are effective and a good thing for U.S. national security interests, but they also want to successfully deter Moscow from future uh, interference. You're listening to CQ on Congress. For more about our journalism and to subscribe, visit CQ.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and NPR One. I'm going to turn now to Cesar Vargas, who's with the Dream Action Coalition and wants to abolish the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. He joins us by phone. Welcome, Caesar. Thank you so much for having me. So, Caesar, why are people talking about abolishing ICE? Well, you know, we are, we're talking about abolishing ICE uh, from, from two fronts. Uh, from One, from the, from the very component on what ICE is as an agency, and namely it's an agency that, that is, is simply a duplication of government bureaucracy. It's another representation of big government and unnecessary government. You know, we have a lot of uh, agencies that deal already with with investigating criminal ruthless organizations that are responsible for investigating uh, transnational gang uh, violence and, you know, cyber crimes. Uh, and the second front is really what ICE has really been doing over the past since its inception, 
which is regardless of whether it was controlled by a Democrat or Republican president, we still saw immigration targeting immigrant communities based on simply race, religion, and ethnicity, and not necessarily on the national security of our country. ISIS's own numbers shows that a majority of people detained were not the bad hombres, as Donald Trump puts it, um, but simply parents, grandparents, soldiers, veterans who have been caught in this dragnet of an aggressive uh, and arbitrary deportation force that we have seen across uh, this past, uh, you know, more than more decades. So well, you know, I think on, those are the two fronts that we really want to deal with that. Uh, um, recently, the Migration Policy Institute, which is a nonpartisan think tank that studies immigration policy, uh, put out a report about ICE and about immigration enforcement in the interior of the country, not at the border, which is ICE's responsibility. And they said mm-hmm. that 69% of ICE arrests, you know, when they see when they uh, detain someone for the purpose of deportation, are people coming out of prisons who are serving sentences for other crimes. And this is in keeping with immigration enforcement in the interior of the country going back many years, where the principal role of these agents is to go to prisons when an inmate sentence is complete and detain them for the purpose of deportation. Are you proposing to end the deportation of immigrants who've committed crimes? Absolutely not when it comes to uh, really detaining and incarcerating and and really processing the deportation procedure when it comes to people with violent crimes. No one's disputing that. If someone is actual a murderer, if someone is part of a violent gang and they're causing havoc in our communities, absolutely not. I think we should continue that enforcement uh, that the FBI, that, that different agencies already provide. But those numbers really don't reflect is that, yes, some people do get arrested and are incarcerated and they're released. But let's talk about the criminal offenses. Yes, we do have people like rape. We do have people with murder. But most of those crimes are either either someone used a fake social security or someone got into a fight or someone, you know, didn't have money to pay the uh, the bus ticket and, and, and had to go to to go to work. Well, the other piece of ICE's work is policing workplaces. And we've heard about uh, an uptick recently in workplace raids where the agents will come to a workplace, surround it, and ask the workers to show their papers. What do you think about that sort of enforcement? You know, and, and I think this is this is where the priorities are terribly, terribly misguided. Uh, you know, it's always on the workers. It's always on the on the fact that you're you're targeting people who are working to provide for the families. Majority, if not all of them, don't have any criminal records. Uh, whereas the employer just simply says, "Okay, we're going to give you a fine," and that's it. So. ICE, of course, is staffed primarily by civil servants, federal employees, not political, but they answer to the directives of political appointees who are appointed by Mm -hmm. whoever the president is at the time. What should we do with those people, the federal employees? You know, one, we abolish ICE. Uh, We abolish the component of the enforcement removal process to to focus, you know, that has been focusing on deportation uh, individuals. Uh, and the other components who do want to enforce, uh, you know, those individuals could help in the efforts, ongoing efforts of criminal investigations that the FBI does, that the CIA does, that the, that the ATF does, and explosives, and all these agencies already provide. We want people to, to commit their service to their country to ensure that we're fighting crime. And the, the Homeland Security investigators have called on the Department of Homeland Security Secretary uh, Kristen Nielsen to 
to pretty much abolish ICE and and transfer their uh, their operations to other agencies. And you know, I think that themselves that you know they do great jobs, absolutely. But I don't think the country does a good job when ICE when we expand when we use our our men and women in service to go to a school and deport the and detain and deport a mother who's just there to pick up her child. You know, that's the priorities of what we are that we need to think about as a nation. So Republicans clearly believe that the Abolish ICE movement is going to help them in the elections. We've seen Donald Trump's already using it in his fundraising appeals. How do you see the politics of it? There's no question that the politics are in play there. But as we know that Democrats have really you know, been weak on their efforts and messaging, not because of the policies of that Alexander uh, Cortez Ocasio, who just won over uh, Joe, Representative Joe Crowley, but it's really because they're timid. Thanks for coming on our show, Caesar. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me again. I am Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall.